The strong wind was howling and whistling. He was the first Chinese citizen to graduate from Yale University in the mid-19th century. I was born on the 17th of November. She had prominent features. Three of us were old enough to lend a helping hand. He navigated between two vastly different cultures and moved further to realize his dream and promote understanding between the people of China and the United States. Ye Mingxing was a native of Hanyang. I realized no danger. China is really awakening. Come and join us in discovering the incredible journey of Yong Wang in his autobiography, My Life in China and America. Check out the audible stories on radio.cgtn.com and all major podcast platforms. Just search for the podcast Books and Beyond and find My Life in China and America. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Roundtable. Coming to you from Beijing, I'm He Yang. Good to have you along. When your loved one is sick or hospitalized, you want to devote as much time and attention to them as you can. But insurance doesn't always cover the expenses. On top of that, if you're taking the patient to another city for diagnosis or treatment. Accommodation, food, and other expenses pile up. We take a look at charity programs offering free accommodation and kitchen to families in need to travel for treatment, and we share with you what's made us happy this week in Roundtable's Happy Place. For today's program, I'm joined by Li Yi in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. First on today's show. Access to healthcare is one basic need for all citizens. China has been working to narrow the gap in health services between urban and rural areas in recent years, but regional disparities still exist. Every year, big hospitals in big cities draw patients from all over the country with the best medical resources available and hope for better treatment. For those patients with severe diseases which require long-term care, the medical bill could be exorbitant. And accommodation, food, and utility expenses for families who accompany patients to travel for treatment add up. Families sometimes have to make impossible decisions, like choosing between paying for treatment or basic essentials like housing, food, and transportation. Hospitals and charity organizations have stepped in to provide much-needed assistance. So, Li Yi, tell us about this children's hospital in Shanghai, which offers free accommodation and kitchen for families and patients from other provinces. Sure, it's actually the Children's Hospital of Fudan University in Shanghai City, and on March 29th, the hospital launched a communal kitchen for families of those sick children who receive treatment at the hospital. And actually, the latest facility is part of a two-year charity program named Xiaobu Family that has been offering free accommodation to families who come from other provinces and bring their children with severe illness for treatment at the hospital. And this program offers free home. Accommodation, and it was operated by the Children's Hospital of Fudan University and also other charity organizations in November 2020. And、uh, the free accommodation program is located at an apartment building near the hospital. And there are 25 rooms, and all rooms are equipped with electronic appliances like washing machines and other daily necessities. 
and also to facilitate transportation between the building and also the hospital, there is also a free and exclusive shuttle bus provided to patients and also families. And those patients and their families who come from other provinces outside Shanghai and their children who receive treatment at the hospital and especially those children with serious diseases. And when the family is suffering from financial difficulty, they can apply to such program. And according to the officials of the hospital, about 70% of patients with severe diseases who receive treatment at the hospital are from other provinces. So that's why the hospital is providing such free accommodation and now shared kitchen to those families of those patients. Is the waiting list super long? Of course. There you go. Well, Josh, I'd like to ask you a question about the situation in the UK where you've got the NHS, which means a lot of people, for a lot of illnesses, you don't need to pay out of the pocket thanks to taxes collected nationally, but treatment is not always nearby. So what is it like for some of, Mm. let's say, the patient families in your country when they want to travel to another city or prefecture or patient families who need to travel to another county or city for treatment? And sometimes they need these kind of support. Is it there? Well, I've been doing some research on this and I have my own experience because I'm from a small town in England where the hospital there doesn't have all the services and i think often um so we have to travel to the next city by which is actually the city of york uh, if it's anything um particularly serious that our hospital can't deal with and also i think what we're talking about here really are pediatric centers right where children are sick i think is usually the case when a family will need to stay there right and um in the united kingdom actually we have one massive hospital that is responsible for a a huge amount of um, pediatric intensive care. That's called Great Ormond Street Hospital. Maybe you've heard of it. It's in London. Um, It's one of the largest heart transplant centers for children in the world, and they carry out 60% of all UK operations for children with epilepsy. And in this hospital, um, there is accommodation. I have found, and they they guarantee that one parent is able to stay with the child. And um, depending on the child's ward, um, it might be just a bedside chair or recliner that they can sleep in, which is very different to what you've described as uh, happening at Fudan in China. But they do actually have accommodation as well, but they say they can't guarantee this. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, more generally, I've found that in the United Kingdom, it really depends which hospital you're going to. A lot of the time they will allow you to, they'll give you a mattress or a recliner next to the bed and you're able to sleep there, which of course is not ideal. Some hospitals, like I found some hospital in Oxford does have accommodation, but it it really depends and it's a bit complicated. But as far as Great Ormond Street Hospital is concerned, um, they do provide it. Yeah, and when you look at the China situation, considering such a huge population we have, 1.4 billion people living in this country, and just a speculation of the numbers would bring to the conclusion that there are a huge number of patients. And then if it's severe illnesses or it's a child that is the patient, and then, of course, you need someone to look after this patient. And um, in China, a lot of the times... The actual treatment 
that requires the patient to stay in the hospital might not be that long because a lot of the times it's like the key procedure is done and then you're expected to recuperate elsewhere. And for some of these severe illnesses, it requires multiple visits over a span of time to the hospital. And therefore, if you have somebody who also needs to keep the patient in care and uh, and these multiple visits or whatnot, it means that there is this need for a place to stay and often in a strange city that is not your hometown or your home city. So in a way, I find this to be kind of refreshing that now there is attention given to these very realistic and human-oriented needs of people. And in the past, maybe we have been talking about all the dire situation or growing number of diagnostic figures of these illnesses, but now we're looking at the real needs of people. And I suppose it's an opportune time to take a look at the communal kitchens Mm -hmm. near hospitals as well, and it's getting some attention right now, again. Yeah, I think uh, as Josh and you mentioned, Traditionally, if a family member would just uh, visit the hospital together with the patient, usually uh, I would say a lot of hospitals do offer accommodation. You know, it's not really that comfortable or convenient, but you do, uh, I mean, if the patient is inpatient, of course, one of the family members could just stay in the room and there will be a bed besides the patient bed. However, for a lot of families, they would also want to provide their home cooked meals for the patient. However, that kind of cooking facilities are not really provided by the hospitals in most cases. So that's why we are seeing a lot of a so-called shared kitchen or communal kitchen being offered near hospitals and which provides like a lot of convenience for those patients and families because, you know, for healthy people, I think we can basically eat anything. But for some patients who suffer from certain illness, especially when it comes to very severe illness, they can't really eat many things. And it's always better to eat some cooked, home-cooked meals. So that's why there's the need for the shared kitchen outside the hospital. And uh, in China, I would say some shared kitchens are launched by hospitals like in an, in an official way. However, in most cases, they are usually run by, by individuals as really as a charity move. For example, a very famous case would be a communication in Nanchang, Jiangxi province, and which has made headlines for years in China. And I personally have interviewed that mm-hmm. communication like two years ago. And uh, that kitchen was actually was actually basically a long, narrow corridor in um, next to the Jiangxi uh, Cancer Hospital, which is the largest cancer hospital in Jiangxi province. Mm-hmm. And uh, the kitchen was really launched by an elderly couple who are in their 60s or 70s. I can't really remember the exact age. However, they operate this kitchen all by their charity move. I mean, they don't really make money. And of course, they don't lose money by operating this kitchen. And uh, they basically charge one yuan for 
each meal, each dish for those families who come to cook in the kitchen. And uh, that kitchen will just offer cooking utensils and also different seasonings and also water, hot water for those people coming to cook. And a major reason that many family members of those patients who receive treatment at the Jiangxi Cancer Hospital would just come to this communication would be it is way cheaper to cook in that yeah. communication than like you ordering some takeaway food or even you ordering meals inside the hospital. Of course, yeah. yes. And that could just save a lot of money for the families, especially when it comes to cancer. I mean, that treatment expense could be huge. So so they really want to save money. So that's why you, you see a lot of like shared kitchens are praised by the public on social media platforms. Yes, of course. And uh, for the medical insurance of this country, it covers up to a certain amount. Mm -hmm. But for some of the severe diseases, if it's rare, especially, and if it doesn't appear on this list that's being covered by insurance, then a lot of the times it's a whole cascade mm -hmm. of financial problems for the family. And You've probably heard of these stories or experienced them yourselves. And, you know, when you see the medical bill, it is um, it is certainly not the situation you would like to be in. Um, so saving up some money when going to a different city for treatment, that's a really big deal for people. And and similarly, in Harbin, North China's Heilongjiang province, there is a similar kitchen that is in operation. And it is near the first affiliated university of Harbin Medical University. Parents can use the kitchen free of charge and cook meals for their kids who suffer from leukemia and and other cancers uh, who receive treatment at the hospital. Josh, could you help us zero in on the important reasons why these facilities exist? Or the need of more, actually? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's really important, I think, especially for parents to, to be there in a hospital. Um, I think that hospitals, for anybody, can be very frightening places but I think particularly for children um so and I and I imagine that most of these families are needing to stay there because of a child it may not always be that way and um it, it, as I mentioned it would be scary for everybody but being in a very different place um surrounded by people that you do not know new senses new sights new sounds things going on around you I think that it probably makes a world of difference to the recovery of that patient as well to have family members there um, and also of course if there is a patient that is very seriously ill um, that maybe even to the end of their life then it's pretty important that uh, family members are able to uh, spend time with them. I think besides you know financially help um, those communication or those free accommodation program provided either by hospitals or individuals could also sort of provide a temporary home for families of, the, of those patients because you know to take care of patients could be a very exhausting work it need you to invest constantly you know not only money but also your energy your time and uh, for those family members of those patients somehow they need more comfort they need more support i mean social support from outside 
and um, and that kind of program or shared kitchens sort of just a. Solve that problem, and I remember when I interview patients and families in the communication in Nanchang, Jiangxi Province. I met a daughter whose father received chemotherapy in the hospital, and she told me her dad was just、uh, so hurt when receiving those treatment, and her dad even asked. The the doctor to stop those treatment, and he even want to die. You know, when seeing that scenario, the daughter herself is really is really heartbroken. However, you know, besides, I mean, in front of her dad in the hospital, she can't really cry or、mm-hmm. she can't really show her weakness because she's the one who is supposed to provide emotional support for the patient. So somehow in that communication, she can just shares everything about this, and she can just cry in front of everybody, and sort of like looking for comfort from other people. And in that kitchen, you see patients, and more importantly, family members of those patients. They would just share their own stories, and then they, they can just seek for help. Maybe people just provide suggestion to each other, and more importantly, that place outside the hospital could also just offer sort of comfort to family members. Yeah. So that's why I think we need more social support like this、um, free accommodation program or like this communication in the society. Yeah, I understand that feeling or that urgency as the family member who's looking after the patient and feel you are compelled to put on a brave face、mm-hmm. because you have a weak. Person that is dependent on you, and you love this person, so you want to provide as much as you can. And in the past, I've read many reports of, or more like personal anecdotes of, let's say, patients travel to Beijing, for example, which is the capital of this country and enjoys、um, relatively concentrated, high level and top quality medical resources. And families sometimes come over and have to. Rent a hotel room,、mm-hmm. but you're staying for at least a week, if not more. So therefore, maybe only rent the really the cheapest ones that one can find, and there's not a kitchen. So therefore, it's really a struggle for people.、Yeah. And if there are more of these facilities, then it would really make life so much easier for those in that situation. But could there be some potential issues with this current arrangement? Yeah, well, there's definitely. Several issues, and I think that in the UK we're also seeing the same issues with the same problem. Is that it's not easy to run these kind of charities and these kind of facilities, especially、um, for、uh, charities that are not supported or funded、uh, by government funding or whatever.、Um, it's all about money.、Um, in in China, I imagine that it is not. Easy,、um, just like it's not easy in my own country.、Uh, National Health Service、um, has lost thousands of hospital beds、um, over the past decade in a big push for more efficiency. And of course, if there's not enough hospital beds for patients, then there certainly isn't enough hospital beds、uh, to provide accommodation for other people. So this is still a priority, and I imagine that in China it's a similar story. I imagine that there probably still needs to be. Literally more hospital beds for patients in developing areas, and that accommodation is going to come after that,、um, which I guess is maybe just the reality of it.、Um, there's also some safety concerns as well.、Uh, some of these private kitchens are set up in residential buildings、um, and with 
for example, all the stoves and things like this, that there's potential safety risks. And you have to make sure that this is monitored and that everybody is safe because that's why you go to a hospital, right? It's to, to be safe, hopefully, and get better. So this is another issue. Yeah, because this is something to do with how these charity programs were started. It's usually by caring individuals and sometimes these folks have been in these exact situations and then out of the kindness of heart and also knowing how difficult it is and then they find the means to make it better for other people but that also means you know maybe they're only starting this from a residential building which is not set up for these kind of events or activities so to speak lee do you have like a suggestion of remedy in that sense? I would say we can involve like more government support or government policy in that process because, you know, uh, regarding that uh, specific shared kitchen I interviewed in Nanchang, I know the local governments have provided subsidies to the old couples in terms of paying their rent and in terms of renovating the whole kitchen. I mean, to really renovate into a safer kitchen for patients and families out there because there were like safety concerns before. And also uh, the local government in Jiangxi has encouraged uh, medium size and also large size hospitals to provide that kind of shared kitchen or communication service to patients and families because now a lot of facilities are provided by individuals out of generosity. However, we hope to see more charity move like this hospital in Shanghai does. I mean, hospitals can really provide that service to patients and families and that could just uh, uh, provide safe and a better service as well. Yeah, and that sounds like a lot of extra funding that needs to go there. And uh, just to add a footnote to what Li Yi just said about the hospital in Nanchang, Jiangxi province, in July 2019, the local government allocated 130,000 yuan or uh, more than 19,000 US dollars altogether to help to renovate that kitchen. And it's good to see that it's received this very much needed public attention so that folks can enjoy the benefits of that. But all these things do not or should not divert our attention from the root issue of all of this that is well, there is that regional disparity between the big cities and elsewhere. Um, that's why families and patients need to travel so far for treatment in the first place. So is there, I know this is not going to be um, done overnight for sure, but um, where is the starting off point to sort of close this gap more or less? Yeah, I think this is an issue that China is facing that is something a little bit different to my own country and something that's quite interesting. I guess that in many respects, the gap is, uh, China is trying to narrow this gap between rural areas and more developed urban areas and big cities. And I guess that healthcare is one of the primary things that needs to be focused on here. And I, I guess it all comes down to money really. And I imagine that financial support is very important. Um, I have some data here that China has allocated 47 billion yuan, which is about 6.8 billion US dollars for building 1,390 county level hospitals since 2016, which is in a bid to ensure that every country, a county and urban district has at least one 
county level hospital. This is from Xinhua in 2019. So I guess that it also comes down to better resource allocation as well. Uh, I also have some detail here. Uh, traditional Chinese service centers have been set up in more than 30,000 healthcare centers in towns, townships, and communities. Um, the country is allocating medical resources accordingly based on the epidemic situation and the urgency of disease, said Mi Feng, a spokesperson of the National Health Commission in December 2022. Um, this is also a topic, something that we hear about all the time in my own country, I just wanted to say, is this idea about resource allocation. And I think that critics of this in my own country often read this as basically taking away beds um, and uh, driving for efficiency in this regard. So it's really complicated, but it comes down often just to funding, I think, and um, yeah, better resource allocation. Well, I think funding is part of the solution to, you know, tackle regional disparities. But I really think uh, there's more. I mean, uh, there is facilities and there is the building of hospitals and the medical institutes, but there are also doctors and the medical staff. I mean, how do you encourage those professional personnel to work in those less developed regions? Because now you see about 40% of medical institutes are located in eastern part of China. And in Beijing and Shanghai, we see the top hospitals in different sectors are located there. Uh, so there are also discussion about cultivating medical talents. I mean, to cultivating uh, professional general practitioners to really allocate them to those down to earth in medical institutes in different levels. Uh, so that's why we are also promoting different levels of medical institutes in China. But I think each step would just stand for a huge transformation and it could just take a long time to see the results. Yes, and data from the National Health Commission shows that in 2020 alone, over 82 million people traveled across provinces to seek medical treatment at the top hospitals in China. To really solve the problem, there probably needs to be a lot more funding that goes to public health and healthcare. Yes, and public health is a very important issue for all citizens and will keep you up to date with the latest development of things. You're listening to Roundtable. Coming up next, our happy place. Go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. You're listening to Roundtable with myself, Hui Young. I'm joined by Li Yi in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. Coming up, we share with you what's made us happy this week in our special segment, Roundtable's Happy Place. And camping, frisbee, among other activities popular during the pandemic, enjoyed rip-roaring success. But now is the time to pour one out for some of those pandemic darlings. If you've never sent us a voice memo, there's no better time than now. Tell us what you think, and what's better, send us your audio questions to ezfmroundtable at 
foxmail.com, your questions could be answered in our Heart to Heart segment. And it'd be great to include your name, the province or region you live in, so we know a little bit more about you. Our podcast listeners can find us at Roundtable China on Apple Podcast. Now, we invite you to our happy place. Delivery, delivery, delivery. What is it? Happiness from Round Table. This segment always puts a big smile on our faces. Josh, what do you have for us? So my happy place is all about sleep, and I know that <laughs> that might seem very obvious, right? Because sleep makes many people happy, but more specifically, it's about. A routine that I've been starting to implement, and it is working so well for me. And just as a bit of background, I'm the kind of person that I think I have a tendency to overwork and be a bit of a workaholic. And I've always had this sort of mindset. I think that's a bit toxic. That it's like, as long as I'm working hard, that's all I really need to do. But actually, I think that the reality of that is that I've ended up neglecting my sleep and. I haven't had a very good sleep routine, a sleep ritual, and I found that that really helps me, especially because I think I need more to force myself、uh, to sleep better. Even more specifically, I'd like to talk about electronics and how this has、uh, removing these at a certain time has helped me. Now, I think aside from all the other negative things that social media gives us and all the anxieties and stress and. Whatever, which we've spoken about before, which we could speak for an hour about. I'm sure a lot of people have heard of this thing called blue light, right? Yes. Now, televisions, computers, smartphones, tablets, whatever it is you're using, even a smartwatch, emits pretty strong blue light. And it is true that a lot of these smart devices are now trying to better themselves by dimming the light and things like this. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's still giving you. Unnatural light, and it's basically tricking your brain into thinking that it's still daytime, along with many other things. And this also results in a suppression of something called melatonin, which is something that keeps you awake. So, putting away those electronics for—I found that I'm doing it for about half an hour and just avoiding using them. It's also showing me how addicted I am to my smartphone by. How much at first I really want to go for it and grab it, but after a while I get used to it, and then I fall asleep so easily. It gives me a time to to read a book. It gives me time to just reflect on myself. And ultimately, we all know how important sleep is to our physical health. I don't think I need to go on about that, but we can all agree that it is. That results in a lot more happiness. So, my happy place is. My new bedtime ritual that is removing technology, really, basically, from that half an hour. That's a great idea, and it should be something that we could all take up. And I remember there was once when I texted my good friend, and also I work with him on the show. Respect him, Mr. Josh Cotterell. And、um, yeah, he didn't respond to my text. At first, I was like, is, is he in some kind of emergency? And then I was like. Did I text him again? Maybe I did. Still no response. And then I was like,、mm, don't know what's going on in China. I guess we're just so used to like everybody's miao hui.、Mm-hmm. If they're not miao hui、yeah. or just re- responding you in a second,、mm-hmm. then which I don't do.、Um, I think it's totally acceptable. But like for a day, and then you get a little worried. And then after X amount of time, 
he responded me with、um, uh, a text saying that, "Hey, sorry for not responding earlier, but I was on a what would you call it? Social media text break or something." And I thought that's、yeah. a great idea. And a dopamine fast. <laughs> yeah, seriously, that's what it's called. Yeah, yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And yeah. and I think that's um really good to take these breaks. And and I think you know when it's sort of outside of work, then this is totally fine. I think friends would totally understand. But what a lot of people kind of find to be a real pickle these days is to take that break away from work and from your bosses. Who kind of expect you to come up with a response whenever? And in the olden days, wasn't it the drug lords or the doctors who were on call would respond to you so quickly? And、uh, no, just that's just a joke. So now your boss is kind of expecting the same, and that's a terrible work culture that should be stopped now. Okay, I digress. So what about you, Li Yi? What's your happy place this week? Well, it's just a. A video clip of a talk show, which I find quite inspiring, and in that episode, the guest is the abbot of Yunfu Temple in Hangzhou City. And you know, during the show, the host just asks the question of, of how to dealing with anxiety of the future, and、uh, so that just the abbot just shares something about how to deal with the. Stress and anxiety and everything, and he says, you know, everyone could just、uh, worry about the future because it is full of uncertainties. And、uh, in fact, if you do know exactly what will happen in the future, and that could be a pretty scary thing. And、um, stress, being worried and being anxious, is like a natural response to uncertainty. But however, when you observe that there is an excessive level of worry, meaning that you are very intolerant of uncertainty and try to plan and prepare for everything, and you use it as a way to avoid or to eliminate uncertainty, and that could just be anxiety disorders. And、uh, it is too often that we are pushed by different levels of anxiety, so we try very hard to make things work. And we can be workaholic due to that kind of anxiety, but in the end, that could just lead to further anxiety and fears and also worries. So you know, as that about said, there are two things that can decide whether you can make things happen. One is internal, and one is external. So you can't really decide everything. You can't really control everything. So what you can do is really focus on what you control. And he said that life is uncertain, and life and death is uncertain. And also the change of season, you know, ups and downs in your life, and even your own mood and your emotion is also uncertain. So they are all part of the uncertainties that comes with everyday life, and you can't really control all of them. But they won't be there forever anyway. So he suggests that we learn to let things pass. Through you, so that's very logical, but it's a smart way to dealing with uncertainties. So basically, when you try to fight or resist something, you give it life and validity. And、uh, but when you detach from it, you basically diffuse its energy, and it it will no longer to have control over you. So if you don't want something to happen in your life, just don't give it any attention. So basically, that's the suggestion from that master, I would say. So basically, accept whatever. Life throws at you is not really a passive approach. Instead, the power of acceptance will help you embrace things in life instead of fighting it, and that can just make you stronger, happier, and more peaceful. 
So that's a very, I would say, inspiring quote and inspiring talk show for me. So that's what I want to share. Right, a happy and peaceful place that you've provided for us, Li Yi. What I have for you this week starts with this: Beijing is a fast-paced city with popular tourist destinations constantly packed and everlasting queues. At its most in-demand restaurants and cafes, but thanks to some lesser-known spots in well-located areas, you can still find the occasional quiet corner for a break from the hustle and bustle, or to enjoy a relaxed catch-up with friends. I feel a bit ambivalent about sharing the following information, 'cause if more people know about it, it will become busy and crowded, and no longer my secret hiding place. But I figured. Sooner or later, you'll know anyway. And also, I was looking for a happy place to share with you. So my happy place is Hongxing Hutong or Red Star Hutong. It's literally a place, a hidden gem, tucked away in the back alley of Jinbao Place in Dongcheng District. Within these last few years, this back street alleyway has attracted real nice coffee shops, sake bars, a modern tea house. And a delicious bakery to find home there. Now, when the weather is nice, you get to sit outside, have a beverage with possibly the best cinnamon roll in town, and bathe under the sun. Take your pick: great coffee, tea, alcoholic drinks, pastries, meals—all in this very nice little neighborhood. Very helpful and friendly staff will you encounter, and they really know a lot about specialty coffee and are happy to share their knowledge. The seating area is real comfy. The cafes in Hongxing Hutong have dynamite coffee with its nitrogen cold brew, particular. Lauded by locals, Beijing might not spring to mind when it comes to coffee culture. Yeah, as a Beijing local, I am a bit sour to admit Shanghai holds the crown of China's coffee capital. But with more and more cafes popping up right across Beijing, there are now tons of places for a good cup of joe. Also, you know, you get your caffeine fix with some delightful pastries. That's a real. Good thing for me. So hop on a shared bike and explore your city. Hongxing Hutong is my happy place, and I recommend it to you. Coming up next, has the trend of camping already petered out? Stay with us to find out more on that. Looking for passion? How about fiery debate? Want to hear about current events in China from different perspectives? Then tune in to Roundtable. Where East meets West, and understanding is the goal. It's the hour of roundtable with myself, He Yang. I have Li Yi in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line, joining the discussion. Since the pandemic outbreak, camping, video streaming, and frisbee have been all the rage. But here we are in the spring of 2023. These sectors seem to have lost some of its momentum. Several campground owners have noted that business is. Kind of hard now. Glamorous photos of camping or sometimes glamping continue to circulate on social media, but is camping no longer in style? So refresh your memory on how popular did it used to be, or is camping still in anymore? What you think? 
Well, I think we all know that camping the sector has been developing fast during the pandemic. I mean, since 2020, when you see people have to stay at home and they just somehow choose to. Get closer to nature, and they would just choose camping as a way to do that. And we got data showing that in the year 2021, the core market size of China's camping economy has reached nearly 75 billion yuan, and with a year-on-year growth of over 60 percent. I think that's driven by different reasons. One is pandemic, and the other is social media presentation. During that period of time, people just start to post pictures and videos of、um, their camping experiences on social media platforms, and、uh, especially for young people, they think、uh, camping is sort of a cool thing, and they can specifically find a place for building connections and、uh, to satisfy their social needs during the camping process. So that just、uh, drive a huge development. A process of camping, and also you can see a lot of discussion about camping on social media platforms. I mean, in 2022, there were nearly four million notes related to camping on a lifestyle sharing platform Red. However, nowadays people are discussing whether camping is losing its allure because it's seemingly that there is、uh, fewer discussion about camping、mm-hmm. on different platforms.、Uh, I mean, according to Baidu, which is a major searching engine in China, there is a significant drop in search volume for the keyword camping after the winter season of 2022. However, it still needs to wait to be seen whether we will see a peak. Uh, as the year 2022 in this year, because obviously it's winter and、uh, spring is coming, so people are still wait and see. But anyway, there is discussion about this sector、uh, overall. Yes, and、uh, during the pandemic, we were all desperate to find leisure activities that we could take part in that、uh, takes place outside of the apartment when we could get out. So that is no longer the case, I suppose. And Josh, has camping ever been big in the UK? And what about during the pandemic when we were sort of knee deep in things?、Um, is this one of those trends that saw its peak then and isn't so popular anymore? What is it like over there in the UK? I think that camping is very popular in the UK, and I think that it has been for quite a long time. I read a little bit of history. I found mostly about the United States, but apparently it's been gaining momentum since the early 1900s with the establishment of U.S. Forest Service and the National Park Service. And it's a similar story in the U.K. when we established our national parks, when we established safe areas for people to camp, even places with facilities like running water and electricity. This has helped a lot. We also have caravanning, which is not camping, but also very popular in the UK, which is kind of like glamping, but without the glamour. I know that sounds very confusing, but anyway, <laughs> it, I digress. Sorry,、yeah. is it like the RVs, the recreational yeah, vans? Yeah, sort of. Okay. They don't really move; they just sort of sit there. They're right. Static caravans. It should be a little bit more comfy than regular、yeah. old school camping, I suppose. You get all the best parts of. The nature experience, but you also get some of the comforts of home、mm-hmm. uh, at the same time. Yeah, yeah.、Um, but you don't build it yourself, and that's part of camping, isn't it? Is that you erect your own tent and then you live in the thing that you have built with your bare hands, sort of. Anyway, I think for obvious reasons, the pandemic spurred this enthusiasm for camping because of. Social distancing and you know within driving distance, having a lot of places to camp, at least in the UK, and then yeah, also people probably wanting to get outside because 
they're having some sort of existential crisis or increased levels of anxiety because of COVID and having to stay at home for so long. So I think all of this probably, you know, encouraged people to take up camping. But I think that, so it, there may be a dip afterwards, but I think there's still going to be a lot of enthusiasm for camping. But I do think that the trend will pass um, to some degree. I don't, I, I think that it's not going to be as popular for sure. Yeah. And you mentioned part of the charm of camping is to set up your tent and i just don't understand the next thing you have to take it down again but what's worth the is it worth the trouble and i i honestly I guess don't that, know how to do it have you done it before well i've watched other people do it before <laughs> <laughs> i i've put up many tents um in my time and i must say that the process of putting up the tent it's one of the best experiences actually because how? once once you've put it up yeah. and then you get inside you really feel connected to that little abode and i think there's just something to be said for feeling the ground finding the right place finding the flattest area or the place that's the best spot and mm. then building just a home for the night there there's something so wholesome about that and i know this may may sound a little bit hippie but i feel really connected to the earth when i'm doing that yeah i just feel a lot of satisfaction that's great so, there you go. Yeah. It's good to have friends who are good at things that you are simply not. So. I didn't say I was good at it. <laughs> <laughs> but you've had plenty of experience doing it. So that's yeah, something. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, to, to that. Lee, do you see that camping has possibly seeped through into our lives in various ways? And do you think that camping is going to remain as a hobby for quite a lot of folks. I, I say this why it might have seeped into our lives is I realize that nowadays, even when you go to like shopping malls or these, these random places, and then out of nowhere, there could be like in the middle of a mall, mm. and there could be this camping site set up. Of course, you know, that's probably set up for the purpose to sell or market, you know, the goods. But I think camping certainly has, you know, gotten closer to us in, in various shapes or forms and also in fashion at, at moments when you see that these like outdoor casual wear um, are kind of acceptable to be worn in the office to a certain extent, uh, that as one of the examples. So what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, for some people, camping has already become part of their lifestyle already in China. I mean, if you look at the whole sector, the development process of this sector, I would say camping is really developing during the past few decades in China, not as early as our peers in US or in UK, um, most of those people who get the idea of camping in the past 10 years, I would say, it's not like for families in European countries, those children, those kids have been like camping all the time, and they know how to camping and then and they have their own understanding of camping. However, in China here, especially in the past three years, I mean, during the pandemic, you see a huge amount of newcomers in camping sector and people have different understanding of camping. Some people think it's just a cool thing to do. They would just do it for social media presentation and some people just do it for like getting closer to nature and uh, they have their own understanding of camping. So these are all the very natural process of one new sector developing into a different level here 
uh, in China. I mean, if you look at other sectors like snowboarding, like st- skateboarding, and also frisbee, yeah, they frisbee. all experience like their ups during uh, the past few years, and you see a flood of newcomers in, into the sector. In the meantime, you are also seeing more well-established infrastructure, or I mean, business also being built in the country. So I know there are discussion about whether camping has losing its attraction to the mass public, but I don't really think that's a huge problem because I would just consider it as a natural process because in the end, you know, those true camping lovers will just stay and those best uh, business operators in the camping sectors will, will also stay and that will just uh, build a more healthy and a more developed sector in the end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, camping is an interesting thing. Um, of course, I advocate for those who are into this, who are spending money in this, or sometimes you don't need to spend a lot, but you still need to get the basic equipment and also get the sleeping bag as such. Um, but those who are enjoying this, sure, great thing. Um, but personally, and I suspect there will be some people like me, um, we're, the son, we're the grandsons and granddaughters of um, people who work the land. And it's still too close to the survival memory in my genes to sleep in the wild or not in a building. So it's like, uh, I remember back in the day, I talked to my grandma about certain things as such as camping, and uh, she couldn't get it. Yeah, and I think I kind of share that idea. It's like we've worked so hard to find a piece of roof above, and um, I'm quite happy to stay there and camping is maybe just um, still a little bit distant for me in that sense but um, it's great to see these new trends that pop up every now and then and we get to talk about it on the show. I never thought about it like that um, when you mentioned that you said that it may be too close to home if that's a something obviously that most British people don't feel um, given that uh, the country is developed and and has been for relatively longer um, than than China. So, and China is still developing. So, that's very interesting. I never thought about it that way, um, and maybe that's why it is such a novelty for British people. But as, aside from that, Huyang, I, I really wonder: is there anything else about camping that really puts you off? Because putting up the tent, <laughs> it's not that big a deal, right? Is is it because is it the cleanliness issue or? Is it the is it the discomfort? Hmm, that's a very good question because you're talking to a bona fide city girl who does not know how to use her hands. Building anything, okay. any DIY stuff sounds like a big challenge for me, but I know plenty of people who are not like that, my peers out there, and I'd like to be friends with you guys because, um, you know, your skills might come in handy if we hang out at some point. <laughs> but uh But yeah, and also, you know, growing up in the city, it's like so being very remote from nature. And uh, if you're unfamiliar with something and then you kind of just feel a bit scared in nature, if something happens, I honestly don't know how to save myself. And also, um, I've read so many stories about these wildfires or a lot of these fires in forests as such are started by 99% of the time are started by humans because of, you know, just some careless activity uh, as such. So I think it's really important to sort of keep in mind when you're out camping to not leave a trace behind, no trash, as well as using fire in a very safe manner. So that's when campgrounds come in handy because these are special places set up for this purpose. And if you're camping 
out in the wild in the woods or or whatnot. I think, okay, that sounds a bit daunting to me, scary to be honest, but, uh, you know, just be really careful um, out there. I think that's something that's probably worth our attention to. You know, when we talk about popularity of camping in China, I don't really think for a lot of so-called campers, they are doing the real camping thing in China, especially in cities. To me, they are more like camping plus picnic. They are more like trying to pick, you know, uh, a place in suburban areas where there's mountain, where there's water. And uh, it's not like, you know, you are trying to building something from scratch. And they are basically trying to find something to either to uh, like a getaway from technology or like a digital detox and uh, spend mm-hmm. uh, a day there and then they just uh, pack their things and go back home. I think it's quite different from the traditional or the very authentic camping way like Josh did. You spend overnight in the wild. That is something you're scared of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, very yeah. scared. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah people have a different- hotel. Yeah. <laughs> Why not just go there? <laughs> spend the money and uh, know that there is the comfort that you can enjoy and safety and warmth also oh, cold sometimes <laughs> yeah and the hospitality and tourism industry has been roaring back with a vengeance this year as folks are eager to go traveling what do you think this will mean for camping uh, i think that it will be certainly less popular than it has been in the last two years during the pandemic i think that we are going to see a dip in popularity, but it remains to be seen. I mean, the the weather is finally warming up and I personally think that we will see a lot of people out and about on the outskirts of the city um, having barbecues and doing their thing. I mean, in one respect, we can talk about the volume of people that are going outdoors. And in another way, we can talk about the camping industry and the amount of money that's being spent on things like these cookers and actually very expensive equipment i've seen some camping stores in beijing and i've gone in there and the price of some of these things the quality of some of them is just insane in in my opinion i mean why would you need a chair that's ten thousand yuan you know that that maybe massages you and keeps your your beer cold at the same time right yeah that's that's not camping you know that's uh, in my opinion Um, (laughs) that's what you do when you have the money (laughs) yeah and so maybe this trend Mm -hmm. you know kols with their expensive equipment posting pictures on Mm -hmm. xiaohongshu and stuff like this maybe that's gonna die away but i still think we're gonna see thousands and thousands of people going out into the nature and doing some sort of camping relating activity so It's remains to be seen. Yep. And have thoughts about the post-pandemic trends in your line of work or any other story we mentioned today? Hit us up at EZFMRoundtable at foxmail.com. That's it from us on Roundtable. Thank you so much, Li Yi and Josh Cotterell, for joining the discussion. I'm He Young. We'll see you next time.